Do you know what we want to see? We want to see better outcomes. We want to see someone spending their money and lending from and banking with and putting their deposits into institutions that fundamentally see them better off in place A versus place B. You're listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights series, where James Robert Lay interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay and welcome to episode 229 of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome not just one, but two guests to the show. Joining me today is Jane Barrett and Anne Legg. Jane is the Chief Advocacy Officer of MX and a longtime champion of financial strength. In fact, in her role at MX, Jane works with government, regulatory bodies, financial institutions, and industry groups to ensure people have secure access to their financial data to improve their financial outcomes. Anne is the founder of Thrive Strategic Services and an award-winning, internationally recognized credit union leader who is leading change via the development of data transformation strategies. She is also the author of Big Data, Big Climb, and you can catch a conversation that I had with Anne going all the way back to episode 23, Why Chaotic Times Call for Human-Centered Design. I'm looking forward to today's conversation with Jane and Anne because we're going to be demystifying what open banking, open finance, open data is, while also exploring some of the biggest opportunities available around open banking, open finance, open data, for your financial brand to create, capture, or capitalize on. Welcome to the show, Jane and Anne. It is good to share time with you both today. Thank Thank you, James Robert. Great to be here. Before we get into talking open banking, open finance, I always like to start off on a positive note. And I'm curious, what is going well for the two of you? I know we're all in good company here as marathon runners and and on that note, I know, Jane, you, you've been training to run the New York Marathon with seven other MXers, but, but this is not just another marathon, right? This is not just another marathon. Uh, we, many people in the fintech industry know the co-founder of MX, Brandon DeWitt, um, very much a mission-driven leader, an incredible person. Uh, he passed away in November last year. So we are running for his favorite charity, which is St. Jude. And I am hoping that anyone that is listening on can uh, can join in, sponsor any, all of the runners. But uh, we're all training hard. We're all in that very painful stage of ramping up miles. So everything hurts, but we're doing it for the best of causes. You, you definitely are. And uh, having run, run marathons before, I, I do feel your pain and wish you and everyone else nothing but the best for this cause and it is a good cause indeed. We're going to come back to that as we wrap up a little bit later on in our conversation. And what about you? What's positive in your world? Oh my gosh. Um, this is pretty exciting. 
the book I wrote, Big Data, Big Climb, is now going to be added to the America's Credit Union Museum. It's called Her Story, and it's a permanent exhibit of women leaders who impacted the credit union industry. So it's kind of, it's like a little mind-blowing to think that the book I wrote turned into a textbook, turned into now a museum artifact, and it's I'm not going to say I'm pretty much over the moon over that. It's, it's pretty cool. That's awesome that is and you have definitely uh had a tremendous journey you know over the past couple of years i'm so excited to see the progress that you have made around the book and all of the other work that you're doing around big data and and i think that's where you know our our conversation comes today because when you think about open banking when you think about open finance these are two big strategic topics they've been getting a lot more buzz throughout the industry and i always want to set some context here for the dear listener to help them gain some clarity because maybe they've heard the term or the terms open banking, open finance, but it might, they might be a little bit confused. What, what is open banking? What is open finance, Jane? So it's far more simple than what it sounds, right? Data is a proxy for money, right? You don't have a pile of money at your bank anymore. All you have is ones and zeros and it's data. And the idea of open banking, open data is just the idea that people should be able to access and share that data with wherever they want to put their data. Like, is it a budgeting app? Is it a loan application? Like the past, the way that the industry grew up was that there was pretty much walls around data. You wanted to get to your money or get to your data, you had to fill in a form, go to a branch. And it was considered something that was pretty inaccessible Now with modern technology and modern connectivity, it's actually a much safer way for people to access and share their data. Think about where we've come from. May 18th, 1996. Was it 90? Yeah, it was was actually May 18th, 1995. So one year before that. That was the day that Wells Fargo launched the first online banking platform. So we're coming up now on 30 years of mm-hmm. online banking, which became mobile banking, which is now digital banking, which is now, you know, the conversation is shifting to open banking, open finance. Why? I think the big why. Why would the dear listener want to think about implementing open banking, open finance, open data within their own financial brand, you know, considering the journey that we've taken as an industry over almost the past 30 years. What are the opportunities, Anne, that you see available for financial brands to either create or capture in the present moment as it stands today? Oh my gosh, there's a couple and I kind of want to break them down into sort of the obvious and the not so obvious. And in the obvious part, you know, when we're thinking about having that much data, okay, we are now talking about the increase and the effectiveness of processes and access. Okay, so let's let's unpack that. What does that actually mean? Well, now one of the big challenges many financial institutions face is how do I get that really quick loan? So I always call it kind of the five second loan you now have the ability to have the five second loan. All right, so that's gonna reduce time and all the associated costs. But also if I have the five second loan, then I've got, and I can't see my finger because this is audio, but I'm doing the swipe and it's the swipe and switch. So now I can actually switch my financial institutions wherever I want, however I want, I'm in control, which allows then, you know, me as in the consumer, but also me as in, allowing to have more access and be able to do more amazing, powerful things. 
Specifically, let's talk about inclusion. So you're going to be able to have additionally really rich data, you know, sources to provide insights to be able to figure out how are you going to widen the access of financial products and services to underserved markets. And then, of course, the final big reason that I can see from the real obvious list here is that to die for analytics. You're now going to be able to see 360 everything that's going on. You have the capability to, but you're also going to be able to look up and look down. And when you see that, for that first time, being able to get that much insight, you know, kind of think of it from like a, you know, NASA spaceship looking down on the earth, you're going to be able to build innovations. Now we're kind of getting those non-obvious, you know, benefits, you know, new products and services, um, being able to understand the member's true financial health, not just in the spot they are right now and doing interventions and figuring out how to adjust, but helping them get to where they want to be. This is going to create all new levels of value. The value transactions are going to get very different. And then on top of that, you're now really looking at marketplace collaboration to fit scale and impact. I want to come back to a point and get your take on this, this Jane, because, and you mentioned something, financial health um, and being able to see things different than how we might've been able to uh, see them before. And that provides a lot of clarity for account holders into their own unique situation. And I think if we explore the past of where we've been over almost the past you know, 30 years around online and, and mobile and digital banking to where we're at today, which, which you provided some context for, Jane, as we look ahead towards the future, this idea of financial health, financial well-being, financial empowerment, what are the opportunities there that we could consider in the present moment and really begin to create a path forward over the, the, the next quarters, the next years to come to achieve that future reality? So that's a, a great question, simply because one thing we don't talk much about is the concept of data insecurity, right? If you're data insecure, mm. it is a fundamental aspect of financial insecurity. You don't know how much money you're that you owe. You don't know what interest rates you're paying. You can't see who's reaching into your bank account and pulling out a, you know, a prepaid or a, a pre-authorized bill. Right? If you don't have visibility, then you are again considered data insecure. So at that very first step, especially for members of credit unions, that you know maybe they've had great relationships in the past, but the financial landscape got so complicated. Mm. And I love that you pulled out the sort of the Wells uh, Online Banking Foundation date, Mint, sort of the granddaddy of fintechs, that was founded in 2007, right? Yeah. So we're now going back, what's this? In 15, 15 years. years. And the way that data would be put into Mint was through screen scraping. Yep. Right? This was old technology where people would share their usernames and passwords and that data would flow into men. Not ideal, not necessarily secure. People didn't have visibility to where their data was going, but people have been doing this for a long time. And so the, the sort of the latest iteration of data sharing that is, you know, through open banking APIs and moving towards open finance is a much more secure way. And frankly, going back to the idea of financial strength, which is the MX mission of empowering the world to be financially strong. If you can then get better visibility, you can use the tools that are actually working for you. 
then that is the path that we see towards a much better future that's not just about, like it's easy to feel good about financial inclusion and financial literacy. Do you know what we want to see? We want to see better outcomes. We want to see someone spending their money and lending from and banking with and putting their deposits into institutions that fundamentally see them better off in place A versus place B. And this is fantastic for credit unions. They have been so uh, transparent over the years around the nonprofit model and just where the money goes. This is actually kind of ideal for credit unions to embrace this sort of visibility. I liked how you connected data insecurity with financial insecurity. And there's opportunity here to increase confidence, but, but, but a person's financial confidence is really rooted more deeply into the clarity that they have into their overall financial picture. And, and when you think about this idea of a lack of confidence and a lack of clarity, that can lead to, particularly from, from the lens of financial services, banks, credit unions, it leads to a lack of commitment, you know, committing to a path, committing to a journey like this, what holds financial brands back from committing to take this path towards open banking, towards open finances, which can create an even bigger, better, brighter future for account holders? I think there's a couple things. I think kind of just to, to boil it down, I think really one of it is that proactive position of strategy, understanding that this is strategy. This is a strategic capability you're building and that it has many tentacles that goes through, right? So when we think about this, we're thinking about if we were gonna be strategic about this, we go, hey, what do we want to accomplish for the member? And Jane just said, look, we want them to have a much better financial life in all aspects. You know, If you really wanna save X or you wanna achieve such dream, like open your own company or what have you, we wanna be there to do that. To do that though, we've got to make sure that is a strategic initiative that has got to be about my strategy. And when I do that, let me kind of explain those tentacles a little bit in there. I also need to be thinking about how, as a culture, am I consuming data? Where's my data confidence? How do I build in all of that gorgeous data capability? Because as I said, you're going to get these analytics that will give you such insights, but are you prepared for that? Do you have a roadmap and a pathway? So you've got to start out in that strategy first position, and then you've got to be able to prioritize what you can do with what you have. And most importantly, how are you going to partner to be able to do this in that beautiful, you know, collaborative way to, as you said, make this better, improve our lives and do this. This is it. This is an enterprise play. Yes. And this is the members and state that you're looking for. Digital growth is a journey from good to great. But sometimes this journey can feel confusing, frustrating and overwhelming. The good news is you don't have to take this journey alone because now you can join a community of growth minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs who are all learning, collaborating and growing together. Visit digitalgrowth.com slash insider to learn more about how you can join the Digital Growth Insider community to maximize your future digital growth potential. Now, back to the show. This idea of business strategy, it is a it has come up in a couple of conversations with financial brands that are in the banking on digital growth training and coaching program that they're starting to for lack of a better word, see the light. They're connecting the dots that this is not just um, something that we pass off to technology because back to your point, Anne, when you have that strategic roadmap, that provides clarity and a path forward beyond the present state. 
I want to stay just for a bit with you, Jane, on potential roadblocks, um, potential challenges in the present moment that could, in fact, actually be rooted in the past that we're just not aware of right now that can hold financial brands back from from making progress going forward. I mean, and highlighted this beautifully is that this often gets interpreted as a technology challenge versus a business challenge. And, you know, we always talk about, we have a whole team of people at MX who are experts in open banking and open finance, and they spend all day, every day in boardrooms with, whether it's digital bankers, whether it's the risk folk, whether it's the C-suite, whether it's the board. And the conversation really kind of goes around four key dimensions. There is the technology side, And honestly, that's often one of the biggest roadblocks. The smaller the institution, the Mm -hmm. more reliance they have on third parties. And those third parties have not necessarily been fast to the table with open banking solutions. So they're looking at a very hefty tech stack and frankly, a very hefty tech bill and saying, oh, this is just one more thing that I've got to do versus this is something that's transformative for the business. So the technology is the first dimension. The customer experience we talked about is the second dimension. And that usually gets the digital bankers excited. It's like, oh, so it's not just about data out. We should be thinking about data in. Mm. And now we can see 360 on both sides. Okay, that's cool. Um, There is the regulatory inevitability, and I'm sure we'll get to that. But this is not like a just we're all going to figure this out forever and take your time. At some point, there will be some sort of regulatory oversight directly related to secure data sharing. So carrot or stick. You want to move ahead of it and be strategic. But honestly, the piece where we get the most resonance and impact is on competitive advantage. If you have an old screen scraped methodology of you don't even like, all you know is that there's a ton of pressure on your system because all these bots are coming in and screen scraping you because your customers or members are sharing their data. That is not like, that's 5% of it. Where the competitive advantage is, is, as Anne said, in insights that you can see what's going on with your customers. It is going from what is a crappy dial-up internet experience to a high-speed Wi-Fi experience for your customers. But best of all, like, it's kind of a land grab right now. Yeah. The biggest institutions, and frankly, some of the smaller ones, have set up these what we call OAuth APIs that are fantastic next generation technology and they're reaping the rewards already and we have seen with some of our partners that we have um, data sharing agreements with they are seeing retention go up they are seeing deposits go up the biggest fear to your question is our customers are going to leave if we make it easy for them to leave our members will leave guess what we're seeing we're seeing the opposite we're seeing more digitally engaged people who are actually you know interacting with their money in a much more modern and positive way yeah and it's that idea of we're scared that people are going to leave that look you're you're viewing the world through a lens of scarcity where the opportunity is to start viewing this through a lens of abundance. And I liked your your note on competitive advantage and your analogy about dial-up. Because if you think about, you know, May 18th, 1995, that's how we connected to the internet back then. Yep. And then you flash forward to 12 years to 2007 with your Mint example we were starting to get mass adoption of broadband. Um, and but, but I think the, the big transformation that happened at that point, what else happened in 2007? 
Steve Jobs walked onto the stage and he launched the iPhone. So now that was really the year that money became mobile. And and when you think about this competitive advantage of insight, back to Anne, what you're sharing, there's an opportunity to take a truly proactive stance in a person's financial life. To, to move beyond being reactive and waiting for people to raise their hand and say, I need help, I have a problem, because odds are it's probably a little too late at that point. But now we can provide proactive recommendations to guide them beyond where they're confused, the complexity, the inherent complexity, the high cognitive load of money. And step by step, you know, if we're thinking about marathons here, how do you train for a marathon? one step at a time you just don't it's not it's not couch to marathon it's couch to 5k for a reason um but i want to come back to something that you noted here uh jane you mentioned the regulatory front um and i want to get your take on this and then pass it over to ann what are you hearing what are you seeing on the regulatory front because i think like you said it's a land grab i kind of feel like you know you know, 94, 95 was web 1.0, 2007 was web 2.0. We're on the precipice now of web 3.0. It's all, everything's kind of like coming together at a a certain point in time, but then there's this regulatory front that we have to be thinking about in financial services. What's your take on that, Jane? So convergence is absolutely the right word because we could look at this in a narrow perspective. You know, there is Dodd-Frank 1033 that is specifically around data sharing. Mm-hmm. And the industry has argued about that for 12 years now as to what that is. So we expect the CFPB to be issuing a role next year that will provide more clarity, more guidance. And we anticipate groups like ours will become under regulatory oversight, which we completely welcome. We think that if you're entrusted with customers' data, there should be oversight. So, but then as you sort of widen the lens out, there's a lot going on in privacy. There's a lot going on in big tech. I mean, we have been extremely fortunate in the US in that we have we have built out an ecosystem of transparency and interoperability that it's actually much easier for the regulators to come in and look over a much broader uh, view of the industry, right? The FDX standard, the financial data exchange, anyone listening who wants to get involved, this is the industry uh, group that works towards sort of long-term interoperability. Um, We've built out an API spec that actually already covers many dimensions of open finance. We are so much further ahead than say markets like Australia, as much as I'm proud to be Australian, Australia and the UK, where it was really just focused very narrowly on retail banking, like checking and savings account. So we've gone all the way up to rewards points and investments accounts and like way broader view of how data can be shared. So the regulators have both an easier and a harder job because what I just said about wealth data, okay, is that FINRA? Is it SEC? Is it the CFPB? Is it the OCC? So you've got all of these different regulatory bodies that are going to have very strong interest, but where it will be regulated and how is also a a pretty big part of this. So, you know, do we end up dividing dependent on what sort of the data is? Maybe, but it's it's complicated. I mean, I'm very, very uh, positive towards 
the staffers at the CFPB have been so deeply involved in this issue for so many years is that there isn't an educational hill to climb. Like they know just as much as everyone else in the industry. And it has been really great to just see the evolution of how they're thinking about this because now we've got angles like big tech, right? Do we want the big tech players to get access to a broad swath of financial data? Should that be protected? Right. right? So there's there's a lot of nuance in this um, that the regulators are contemplating and we assume bringing into to roles that are coming at us fast. Yeah, and, and on that note, like you said, there's so many different you know regulatory bodies that are in motion uh, when it comes to financial services. Maybe there's a collaborative op- uh, opportunity there as well. I do know that there's a collaborative opportunity when it comes to uh, fintech um, and you know in- incumbent or traditional financial brands to collaborate together. Once again, looking at this from from a view of abundance and collaboration, not of scarcity and and competition. What are you seeing and hearing uh, on this through your work, Anne? Yeah, it's funny because Jane, you just said such a, you just in like very few words, you just laid out this gorgeous, beautiful tapestry and it is a tapestry because it's, it's not where I just am looking at one icon. There is a lot going on in this beautiful tapestry. And unfortunately, we're not exactly sure where it's all going to land. We are certain that there are going to be three things that we have to focus on to engage this. And the first one you just said data security. Well, you know, credit unions are definitely focused on that and should be if they're not already on that. Second one is data privacy, same thing. They're already doing this. The next piece is you might talk about the screen scraping is where does the technology stand? You know, if we look at pretty much the other standard out there that's been regulation, as you pointed out, was UK. You know, UK started really open banking regulation again in that narrow lens in 2018. And the UK government is now saying that they expect to have, I think it's 60% of all of their banking consumers to be using um, um, open banking by next year, right? So if we look at that and we can see, wow, there's a lot of proof points in there, specifically around the loan processing, the speed of processing, the accuracy, the efficiency, the approval. We look at that and we say, okay, this is these are proof points. We know here in the United States, if we wanna move forward on that, We've got to take care of the the big three there, the data security, privacy, and where we are with technology. We know we've got the two. We've been working on them for a long time. Technology is where we get that collaborative partnership. Mm. That's where we're looking at our ecosystem. That's where we're saying, hey, how do we collaboratively and cooperatively bring all these elements together? Because that's where we're going to have that beautiful scale and impact. We can't do this alone. And if we're thinking we're doing this alone, we're very foolhardy. I I think just to to add... There's been kind of a single threaded conversation, which is from bank or credit union to fintech. Guess what the biggest use case is? It's institution to institution. It's people sharing their data between covered uh, financial institutions. So that's, that's one thing to call out. There's also intermediaries. Like it's easy to say fintechs and all fintechs, but like fintechs, I would say JP Morgan Chase is one of the biggest fintechs out there mm-hmm. in terms of their investments in technology yep. and their adoption of, you know, incredible next-gen tools. So I think this is a false um, division between, you know, institution and fintech, that's one. But we're also now seeing incredible adoption almost outside of what you would consider bank, credit union, or fintech, right? Like I mentioned rewards points. We're seeing insurance companies. We're seeing 401k providers. We're seeing all of these like B2B to B2C, let's just say employer 
um, solutions Mm -hmm. engaging with open banking. We're seeing medical providers, you know, standing up ACH direct payments, right? The the horse has long left the stable around this, you know, bank credit union fintech triangle. Yeah, that's a great point. And and it it opens up the entire ecosystem to where it's not just a bank. It's not just a credit union. It's not just a fintech. I think about uh, Lyft, for example. Um, They offer banking services to their drivers. Um, And I think we're going to see more and more. And and it's been a big conversation um, on the podcast around the idea of, quote unquote, niche banking um and how retail brands could you know possibly open up banking and i forgot what it was a big a big fashion house and i don't know it might have been gucci i forget who it was but someone had posted something on linkedin essentially that you know gucci could easily you know pull in over a billion dollars worth of deposits if they were to not just do the uh, the traditional credit card play, but then they start taking start taking deposits, and then you're like, well, why would Gucci have any interest in doing that brand affinity? And then you're getting to the whole Web 3.0 conversation of how does this all play out into other intangibles like NFTs and the metaverse. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but it's just I think these are the things that we should be thinking about because I think brand affinity plays will play a lot into where we end up quote unquote, putting our money, but back to your point to start this conversation, that's just ones and zeros. Money is now data. It's ones and zeros. And I get this question a lot because, you know, we've talked about like, what is this idea of open banking, open finance, open data? We, we've talked about why it's important to, to really be thinking and considering not just from a technology sense, but really from a business strategy the question that I get a lot through the training and coaching I do is, that's great. Where do we get started? Um, <laughs> because now it's like, I see the opportunities. What do I do next? So for the dear listener, Jane, where where can financial brands get started with this, very practically speaking? Yeah. So again, there are a number of experts out there and we would strongly recommend that people don't start at step one, right? We're just going to contemplate and learn everything we can and talk about everything because then it will be a multiple year journey. So we have done, and I mean, we've done an open banking readiness assessment, which is on our website. Like that is a a great way just to ask what are the questions. Um, Often it is when we've seen, institutions go from zero to actually very active in a short amount of time because they've done the core things. Who's in charge? (laughs) Let's assign some resource. Let's assign some budget. Let's make sure this is on our strategic roadmap, strategic roadmap, not just the technology roadmap. Um, And then look at, and, and then look at what the options are. I think there's quite a few places jumping in going, Oh, such and such has a solution. Let's just implement that. When the options are, I mean, there's always the do nothing option and wait for the regulation. We do not recommend that. Um, There are interim options. And one of the ways that we engage with a lot of both our customers and other institutions out there is that we will whitelist IPs. You're not ready yet. You really only have to whitelist the IPs of say five, six companies out there and you're gonna get 90% of your traffic. And now you're gonna understand at least at the top level 
it's going to Intuit, it's going to MX, it's it's going to Yodley, right? So you've got this, I, okay, now that now we've kind of started to size it. And then you look at the API, right, itself. So are you going to build it from scratch? Many companies have. You don't need to do that anymore, right? We have a product called MX Access that basically it, it gets institutions 80 to 90% of the way there. But this is on you, right? It's still for you as an institution to manage, to manage your onboarding and your legals and things, but you don't need to build it from scratch. So, and there's other solutions out there that will get you, again, further past step zero, but really looking at them as alternatives. I mean, obviously we're biased towards it, but we think that institutions should be the one holding the keys to the kingdom. We don't think this should be something you outsource. Yeah, you you mentioned business strategy once again in your thoughts, but as you're talking through, I also think there's a bit of a cultural transformation that that there's an opportunity here uh, for cultural transformation. I sh- I should say because you mentioned you could build it, you could buy it, you could partner on this now, um, and and you and you touched on the eighty percent. Because I think in financial services, historically, it's like we feel like we have to get to the 100% before we're ready to launch it. But that's where this idea of iteration comes into play. We want to pilot. We want to get things out. We want to test. We want to learn. We want to optimize. And and that does require a bit of cultural transformation when we think about where we've been, you know, coming back to that 1994 example to today, um, we, we can get stuck. It's like, okay, I'm with you, Jane, but but how? How are we going to do this? And I think it's when we think how, we're already limiting our potential future growth. When the in in this highly connected digital world, the opportunity is to think who? Who do we need to collaborate with? Because the who becomes the how. And there's a fantastic book by uh, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, organizational psychologist, and Dan Sullivan called Who, Not How, which was written from an entrepreneurial lens. But I think that same concept of thinking who before how makes a tremendous amount of sense to make make yeah. this all reality going forward. W- what's your take on this, Anne, this idea of thinking who before the how when it comes to open banking, open finance, open data as a path forward? Absolutely. And I'd like to kind of pull in several threads here and bring them together, specifically from like the credit space. They're looking and always have looked at, and should be if they aren't, that member-centric lens, right? What are we doing for the member? How are we doing this? And obviously in, in banking, it's it's from that user. This is exactly the lens that you need to be thinking about, which is what's the friction your end user has doing business with you. That's something you're already focusing on. So bringing in that, hey, how do I shift culture? Hey, let's take on something you're already looking. When I look and see what is that friction that my member or my my user has, my customer has, it's going to be around process. Mm. So when I'm looking at that, I need to say, well, what do I do and how do I fix process? And I'm, and I'm now bringing in the thread of how do I need to make this laser focused How do I make this very incremental and how do I make this doable? All right. So now I'm thinking about my use case and that's kind of where I was bringing all the threads in. What am I trying to do regardless as an organization? What I'm trying to do is lessen friction. So what are those pieces I need to do to do that? 
This is exactly an example to solve for that. And as Jane said, if I say, great, I want to figure out how to lessen friction and I open up and I start getting more insight, I have now just shifted myself just slightly to be able to make those steps to do what? To be successful, to be able to have data confidence and data capability in a way that I get it that works for me as an institution. And that's that who and how all kind of coming together in that use case. Everybody at the table has to say, that's the friction we want to solve for. And this is the how. So you've got the who and the how and the use case. And there you have it, bringing it back to the strategy. Yeah, that's all full circle right there because, you know, Jane, the way that, that you really helped to frame this up is data insecurity leads to financial insecurity. And as financial brands, you know, if we're truly wanting to guide people beyond the financial stress of, of today that they're feeling that's taking a toll on their health, their relationship, their, their, their overall sense of well-being and get them to a bigger, better, brighter future. Back to your point, and it's about increasing the data confidence that we have to connect it all back together, to reduce fr friction, which, you know, Jane, you mentioned your four tenets of technology, of CX, of regulatory, and then also competitive advantage. This really does bring it all together as we wrap up here. As we wrap up, one final question, looking ahead towards the future. What are you feeling most hopeful, excited, and optimistic about? Jane, you go first. Well, what still gets me up every day and has had for a long time from founding a fintech to being a financial educator on LinkedIn Learning to you know driving the mission at MX is the fact that we have a what I would consider a once in a lifetime opportunity mm -hmm. to reframe the way that people engage with the money and the way that, frankly, companies who in the past have succeeded based on product sales and sometimes predatory interest rates, right? We have a once in a lifetime opportunity to reframe this. And if we don't as an industry, I guarantee there will be other players that can stand up and do it. So that's what I'm excited and hopeful about. I think there's many, many brilliant people in the industry who have their hearts and minds in the right place in terms of customer outcomes. We just need to shift business strategy and technology strategy to ensure that we get there. And we don't hold on to this old world of like share of wallet is the mark of success because it's not, and it's not sustainable. I have been speaking about the days of the PFI, that idea of share of wallet. They probably that is sunset, but if you come back to what you just said, you know, transforming the thought from product first to people first, putting the transformation of people over the commoditized transaction of dollars and cents. Mm -hmm. I'm right there with you. And what about you? What are you feeling most hopeful, excited about looking ahead towards the future? Jane and I are getting up the same day and jumping <laughs> on this stuff. I mean, it was kind of like, I'm like, yeah, and yeah, but let me, let me just kind of say what she said plus it's that whole connection and ability that finance has an impact on the human condition. You know, we don't ever think about finance being a first responder, but that is where we are. And that is what the capability is. And that's what excites me most is this impact to being able to say and measure and have the success of saying, this is how the person has been bettered, improved because of the abilities and capabilities that has been provided. Yes. And that just, now I got goosebumps. 
the, the, the idea of the financial first responder is one that truly resonates because we do know the connection and correlation between a person's financial well-being, we'll call it their wallet, and their physical well-being, their financial well-being, and their mental well-being, their emotional well-being. It, it truly is all interconnected. This has been a fantastic conversation, Jane, and thank you both for joining me. How can someone continue the conversation with each of you going forward just to reach out and say hello? Uh, Jane, I know you mentioned too um, an assessment, but then also coming back to your marathon as well. Mm-hmm. How can they get involved with this too? I think that's very important. So uh, either on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'm Jane underscore Barrett on Twitter. The links are in there. I'm very accessible through social media. I'm pretty much sure my phone number is pasted out there as well. So would love to see uh, anyone who's interested in either getting involved on a marathon basis or especially getting involved from a how do we accelerate open banking across the ecosystem. Uh, The team at MX is always here to talk. Absolutely. Thank you, Jane. And what about you? Likewise, again, Jane and I seem to be attached to the hip. Please me on either uh, Twitter and Thrive or LinkedIn. And also kind of getting back to the whole book place, we're doing a whole promotion to fundraise for that permanent exhibit at the America's Credit Union Museum. So all book sales in the month of September, which is when they're doing revealing this beautiful exhibit, we're all going to go straight to contributing to the support of that. And you can find more information about that at um, annlegthrive.com. Get the book take the assessment, connect with Ann and Jane, learn with Ann and Jane. I would even say run with Ann and Jane. (laughs) And we we will all grow together. And Jane, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. This has been a lot of fun today. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. To get even more practical and proven insights along with coaching and guidance, visit digitalgrowth.com insider to join a community of growth-minded marketing and sales leaders from financial brands and fintechs. Until next time, be well and do good.